0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Journal Show podcast. Today on the pod, Canada Day Strike. We look at the economic threat posed by a West Coast port strike set to begin July 1st. Plus, low-rise building or big city skyscrapers. We look at the upcoming battle over Vancouver's Jericho lands. Plus, Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones for the fifth time at the age of 80. Tom Cruise turns 60 as he launches yet another Mission Impossible movie. And Denzel Washington delivers Vigilante Justice in the third Equalizer franchise at the age of 68. We look at why silver hair foxes still rule the box office. That's all next on the Jazz Jehovah Show podcast. Now let's get to our top story today. More voices are raising their concerns over a potential port strike that could begin tomorrow, saying it'll be a significant blow to our economy and could lead to um, price increases. Now there's 72-hour strike notice was issued on Wednesday by the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, which affects about 7,400 terminal cargo load- loaders in 49 of the provinces waterfront employers at more than 30 BC ports. Of course, Canada's busiest is right here uh, in Vancouver. Now, the union says that contracting out is a big issue. Port automation and cost of living are key issues in the dispute. Now, Bridget Anderson, who's the president president and CEO of the Vancouver Board of Trade, says any prolonged job action will be a significant blow to our economy and could lead to price increases. Take a listen. Inflation and
1: rising interest rates. And, you know, when we look at there any kind of potential disruption in the port, we're also concerned that this could be not just a temporary disruption, but a permanent disruption as we're already seeing some cargo being diverted to other ports around the
0: world. Joining me now to look at the potential impact if there was a strike is Werner uh, Antweller. He's the associate professor at the Souter School of Business at UBC. Mr. Antweller, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, it's hard to predict, but uh, from what you see and where you are, do you think we're headed into a strike? It's a pretty good chance that at least uh, even in the short term we can expect some sort of job disruption. Yes,
2: it very much looks that way because the positions seem to be still quite far apart and there are some issues that are thornier than others. This is not just about wages, but to, as you mentioned, it's also about automation at the port, and it's also about outsourcing, and these are very thorny problems to
0: solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, and we talk about the importance of our port, uh, but how important is it to BC and Canada's economy, and just the ability for goods and services uh, to move here in our province?
2: Yes, our ports are absolutely critical. Uh, roughly a quarter of all international trade goes through our two ports in, on the West Coast. So, if uh, these ports are not working at full capacity, it has a ripple effect through the entire economy because so many businesses depend on either importing goods Mm -hmm. for their production for intermediate goods. Uh, but also, companies are exporting their manufactured goods and produce goods uh, uh, overseas, and so if the ports aren't working, uh, businesses are losing money, and potentially uh, employees at these uh, companies uh, could also be impacted if there are shortages of
0: work. Uh, I've been hearing numbers uh, like 800 million to a billion dollars worth of goods flow in and out of BC ports every day. Are those numbers roughly accurate?
2: Yes, they are. Uh, So about $800 million is the number that uh, uh, shows up in the annual reports from the Port Authority and there are roughly three and a half million containers going to the port every year. So this is um, uh, not the largest port in the world, uh, but it is a very significant mid-sized port. And for Canada, it's pivotal because uh, it's uh, the main way how we get goods uh, to international markets and receive goods. If uh, the port isn't working, and we would have to get the goods through alternative routes uh, that are more expensive, mostly to the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to gauge this, but broadly speaking, our Canadian ports, and certainly our West Coast, coast ports specifically? Are they competitive? And competitive is probably hard to gauge sometimes. Maybe it's cost, maybe it's efficiency, movement of goods and services and how fast we can get things out of the port. Um, or, are we competitive as a port here in Vancouver and, 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 and Prince Rupert? Unfortunately,
2: we are not. The World Bank has done a ranking of all the major ports in the world. And it turned out our Canadian ports uh, here on the West Coast are performing very poorly by productivity standards. Uh, it takes too long. It's essentially too costly. And essentially, that is a cost that is passed on to other businesses. The uh, Port Authority is uh, trying to mitigate that. Uh, there is a proposal to build a new terminal, the Roberts Bank Terminal 2, mm-hmm. and of course, to, to introduce new technology to improve the efficiency.
0: So before we get to Roberts Bank, just for a moment, why are we not competitive? We're a developed nation, access to goods and services, access to technology. Um, why are we not competitive? Well, one
2: reason is automation. Uh, Many ports around the world have actually upgraded uh, their facilities by investing into more automation and and basically capital that uh, um, allows things to be handled more swiftly and with less labor. And, of course, that is exactly where the labor dispute is now sitting because the union isn't very happy about the prospect of further automation that could uh, displace uh, workers. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, we also see – growth in uh, demand for for transportation services, and that is precisely the reason why what's Bank Terminal Two is on the
0: drawing map. Mm. Uh, I saw this amazing footage um, uh, on Twitter yesterday. I actually retweeted it. It was, I think, it's a Long Beach port, which is a port near Los Angeles, and it was all automated. Not all of it, but you saw good the, these containers moving at the port back and forth and sideways, and there were no human beings.
3: Uh, right.
0: And it was just, it, you know, just on a technical point of view, it was like a, a a technical ballet as I'm watching this. But then, as you, when I looked into it, it was like 600 longshoremen lost their job. And these machines, these these machines are moving these uh, these containers. Uh, it's like a ballet. And I was just shocked to look at this. I go, if this is the future for longshoremen, not many of us have much of a chance in other jobs when you bring it, bring in automation. I mean, it 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 would seem to me, just looking at those visuals. A and what you have said, this strike and what these uh, longshoremen are concerned about, this is an existential challenge to them, is it not? This is an existential moment for them when it comes to their jobs.
2: Yeah, I can appreciate the challenge uh, that is uh, posed by automation that is uh, not different from other industries, mm-hmm. for example, in automotive manufacturing, uh, where um, robots are increasingly taking over or, what is, uh, or has been uh uh, mostly uh, work uh, by by workers, mm-hmm. um, and so this is some, something that is happening already at ports, and you mentioned uh, California. All the ports around the world are upgrading along the same way, and the ports that are not they become uncompetitive and they lose business to competing ports and that is a challenge that uh, Canada cannot lag behind others in, in the productivity uh, of their ports. Uh, what it means for the workers is that increasingly uh, there will be fewer. Uh, jobs, but uh, those jobs that, um, uh, remain will, uh, require upgrading because the, the people handling, uh, these robots, uh, need qualifications and training that goes, uh, beyond what they currently have. Mm-hmm. So skill upgrading is one of the other key questions in uh, labor negotiations that actually allows uh, these workers to compete for
0: the jobs of the future. Uh, this is a, a question a bit a bit out of uh, left field here, but I think it's an important one. A few years ago, the Panama Canal was upgraded. Um, it has, had the, has that had any impact on, on traffic or uh, potential or com- competitiveness with other ports as well? Has that made it tougher for, for the Vancouver port?
2: Um, not to a large extent because of the location uh, advantage that we have. Uh, it is the shortest route to serve the Canadian market. Um, but, of course, the, the fact that the Panama Canal can now handle larger ships means that some can detour, for example, all the way uh, to eastern ports rather than actually uh, ending here in, uh, on the West Coast and then uh, putting all the uh, containers on rail uh, or on trucks. So in that sense, uh, it has changed the equations a little bit, but still uh, the location advantage we have is still very strong, and it's not going to get displaced uh, significantly by what's happening in the Panama Canal.
0: I won't hold you to this. My final question to you, do you think this is going to be a longer strike just because of the sort of the broader existential challenge that's there for for longshoremen, and it seems to me when you talk about automation, there's potential job loss there. There's efficiencies that are required, the competitiveness with other ports as well. Do you expect this to be a, a, a you know a, a, a tough negotiations moving forward?
2: It will be very tough because it's not just about wages. If it was just about wages, we should see a settlement quite quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: it is really about the long term prospects of all these workers and what their jobs are going to look like in five or ten years from now. And the, the sad part about it is that this automation is going ahead, whether uh, they like it or not, it's just something that is happening elsewhere. And uh, Canadian ports cannot uh, stay behind and, and uh, maintain market share. Uh, and so it will be a uh, very strong pressure on the workers to come to uh, terms with the employers, with the port authority in this case, And um, if the strike actually drags on for more than, say, two weeks, I could easily see that uh, uh, it becomes a critical bottleneck for other industries and the pressure on the uh, politicians will grow to actually do something about uh, essentially putting uh, the the labor dispute into uh, arbitration. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: uh, Professor Antweiler, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful Canada Day long weekend. You too. Let's catch up with our good friend, Mark Staling, senior anchor and executive producer at AM 730 traffic, traffic to give us an update on the roads. And of course, uh Ferry traffic as well in the borders as well. Hello, Mark. Hey, good afternoon, Jez. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. So first of all, let's just start with the roads. Uh, how's it look right now?
3: Well, just a quick uh, update on, uh, we heard Trish's report about four minutes ago. Things have changed since then. The crash westbound at Brunette's gone. Now there's an incident eastbound east of the Portman climbing Johnson Hill, and there's no more stall on the Golden Ears northbound, but now there's a crash on the Maple Ridge side of the bridge at Lougheed and Doodney. So that seems to be – it's been kind of a whack-a-mole situation here all day where, you know, clear a problem and then another one pops up, you know, five, ten minutes later. And frankly, you know, rush hour coming off the North Shore for Highway 1, mm-hmm. this is the, it started at like 10.45 this morning. There was a crash and it just never recovered and it's just been busy ever, ever since. I'm kind of hoping, you know, sometimes – You know, it means that the rush hour ends sooner uh, Mm -hmm. because everybody's getting out of Dodge so early, and that's been the flow, whether it's coming off the North Shore and it's still... I mean, there's no incidents, but it's just so slow on Highway 1 east through uh, Langley and Abbotsford still right now. Mm -hmm. Once you get through Chilliwack or east just past Chilliwack, yeah, you're you're fine, but... um, it's been really busy, so it's not a ton of incidents, it's just the amount of people all doing the same thing right now, all the cars on the road, and it's uh, just really, really busy out there.
0: Leaving at the same time mm-hmm. to, uh, for for the long weekend. Now, uh, ferries, what, what is it just don't bother? <laughs>
3: well, uh, one one thing I'm happy to report is that I actually have the website open in front of me. It's working, oh. it's working again. Went down for like 20 minutes, then it went down for like an hour and a half. I managed to figure out a back channel to get some more info onto the airwaves, but... Uh, I mean, <laughs> if you didn't have a reservation, then I'm not sure what you're what you're doing. But uh, there's a little bit of room on the late night sailing at 9 from to Swartz Bay. Um, there's a little bit of room as well if you're trying to get to the Gulf Islands. Uh, to Duke Point, there's that super late night boat, a little bit of room. When I say a little bit of room, I'm saying it's like 90% sold. Um, but I believe there it is. Yeah, if you want to go Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay, spoken for from 3.55 all the way to 10.40 tonight, um, it is sold out. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if this is top three or top Five, but this is one of the busier, you know, ferry days of the year, right? So, um, I planning get, ahead is is big,
0: yeah. I think it's number two for the year. I think uh, the BC Day Long Weekend is the busiest, mm-hmm. but uh, I think they do their retrofit, they usually do the retrofit starting in September, which is, of course, a slow season. But I guess this particular one, the only time they could do it was now because there's only one facility that that could do it. But and if they get delayed, you get this, and it's just uh, it's it, it's one. Domino after another that's fallen, and it's it's a mess. So,
3: and just a quick note for the borders: it's yep. busy, but it's it's not it's not ridiculous or anything. You probably need to budget close to an hour to get through South for Peace Arch or Pack Highway if you don't have a Nexus pass. So that's busy, but in the grand scheme of what we have seen in the past on some of these days, where it's like you know three hour waits at the borders, not seeing that. Uh, tomorrow morning is probably going to be pretty busy at the borders because people think they can kind of get an early jump, and everybody goes all at the same time at you know seven o'clock tomorrow morning, and it gets busy. But uh, yeah, border's busy, but I wouldn't say it's anything uh, truly outrageous as far as those waits.
0: Well, you just don't want to be a ferry traveler today, that's for sure. Or this yeah. weekend, anytime. Yeah,
3: hey, yeah. Wa- if you can walk on, you know, yeah. walking on, if you can get somebody to pick you up on the other side, you can always walk on. It's getting your car on board that's the issue, and yeah, reservations are just a must. Yeah, there you go. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Josh.
0: Harrison Ford is repri- uh, reprising perhaps the most iconic role of his career as archaeology professor-turned-adventurer Indiana Jones this month with the fifth and apparently final time. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny uh, hits theaters today. Uh, take a listen to the trailer. I'm retiring.
4: Well, in that case, what are we drinking?
0: Same
5: for the goddaughter.
4: Dad told me you found something a train during the war stop, a dial that could change the course of history
5: why are you chasing
4: the thing that drove your father crazy No will move we need to get out of here stop sorry
5: dr jones get him
0: Hitler made mistakes. And with this, I will correct them all. You stole. That, of course, is Harrison Ford uh, in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It's in theaters today. Now, there's no doubt, uh, you know, we all live longer. We're living healthier lives. Uh, and we many people are prolonging their careers and working longer. And apparently that apl- applies to Hollywood's action genre as well. Think about that for a moment. Harrison Ford, uh, in this role, is 80 years old. 80. Keanu Reeves uh, will be uh, in the latest John Wick installment. It was 58. Tom Cruise will be 60 when Mission Impossible um, uh, opens up in July. And Denzel Washington will be 68 when he returns as a vigilante uh, in The Equalizer Part 3. And of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the Netflix uh, uh, action comedy FUBAR that was out a few weeks ago. He's 75. In fact, when you look at the numbers, uh, it's quite interesting that the average action leading man, the average age so far this year in Hollywood is 55 years old. Uh, old. In 2015 it was 47 and a decade earlier it was 39 years old. So what's happening when it comes to ha- all these silver hair foxes and they're still ru- ruling the box up? So joining me to talk a little bit about that and the movie uh, is Rick Forchuk, a TV Week magazine columnist. Rick, thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Good to talk with you, Jazz. Yeah, well, let's just start with the first part here. You were uh, you watched the movie uh, just a few hours ago. You watched the matinee. What, what, what are your thoughts of the movie so far?
5: Well, I enjoyed the movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it a lot, and uh, it was exactly what I was expecting. I had a little bit at it on the side. And some really interesting things that Harrison Ford has done here. As you mentioned, he's 80 years old. He was 79 when he started making the movie, uh, 80 when he finished it. Uh, But uh, in the beginning, there is some of that de-aging computer software that uh, makes him look younger. And in fact, it should, because the opening scenes take place during World War II in the 1940s. Uh, But when we get to the present age, not our present, the present in the movie, which is 1969, he is a full-blown guy that age. And uh, very early on, there's a scene in which he is shirtless. And it's not a scene that says... Look at me, look at this physique, look at what great shape I'm in now. It's the physique of a 79 or 80-year-old man, and that's just exactly as it should be. So I loved the movie, thought it was terrific, had a time travel element to it, which is my favorite genre, Mm -hmm. and I thought it did just, just great all the way around.
0: Oh, wonderful. So you're going to recommend it uh, to your family, friends, and, of course, to our audience uh, uh, as well. So let's talk about the other big issue here. I was going through some of the ages. Tom Cruise, of course, will be 60 when Mission Impossible hits theaters. Denzel Washington, 68. And, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger just had that uh, Netflix action comedy released a few weeks ago called Fubar. He's 75. What does this tell you? Is this a case of Hollywood saying, you know what, there's no such thing as a young action hero, a young movie star anymore? We're going to rely on on the old guard.
5: Well, I think it's that. I, I think what it is, uh, because the movie-making business is a business, first and foremost, and uh, they love to go with a winner. So if you put Harrison Ford in a movie, it's going to sell tickets. And the same is true with Tom Cruise, uh, not just because he's Tom Cruise, but in part because he's Tom Cruise. Uh, a couple of other examples, for example, uh, coming up this summer is The Expendables 4, Sylvester Stallone, age 77, playing an action hero once again. Uh, In theaters for the last couple of weeks, the movie The Flash. And in The Flash, there are a couple of great cameos. Uh, I won't give them all away, but uh, we do see in the role of Batman, one of the original Batman on film, Michael Keaton, age 71. And we also see George Clooney as Batman, age 62. Uh, You mentioned Keanu Reeves. There's also... Jason Statham, who's 55, Vin Diesel, who's 55. They continue to crank out action movies because they are certain box office winners. No question about it. I know that um, the demographic is aging, so we have this wave of baby boomers moving in that direction, and people like to see other people who like look like them uh, on screen. But it's also a fact that uh, the business side of it says these people— really bring in ticket sales and that's what it's all about and that's what they want jazz
0: um. Moving forward though, and eventually they, they, will have, they will be replaced, Just it's the nature, nature of the business as well. Can Hollywood create those movie stars or is there anybody capable of, of being that type of movie star just because of, or is it too hard now with the movie industry that is going through significant changes, our viewing habits have changed, we've gone to streaming, we don't spend as much time at the movie theater anymore. Is the, is the movie, movie star, the, the traditional movie star on his way out or her way out?
5: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that is true, because you're right. As this wave, this demographic wave of older actors uh, that are doing so well at the box office moves on uh, and starts to drop off, what or who will replace them? That's the question. And when you look backwards, uh, there aren't a lot of action adventure stars. There's a handful that are younger. Uh, Simi Liu, for example, uh, who is Canadian and uh, who is in the uh, Nine Rings. Uh, also from uh, Corner, uh, not Corner Gas, from uh, uh, Corner Grocery, the, the uh, store's uh, TV, TV series, CTV. Um, he's a young guy and doing action stuff, but it's all pretty light. And um, it doesn't have the same gravity or the same strength that we see. And you're right. Um, when you look at the budgets of Netflix movies and other streaming movies, mm-hmm. they are getting smaller, not larger. And that means they will pay less for their stars. And that means that there is no studio system, per se, to buoy these people up and to have kind of a group of people around them saying, way to go, way to go. Let's get another one of these going. Uh, So it's going to be a challenge. I think uh, you're quite right, Jazz. The business is changing. Streaming makes a huge difference. Uh, It costs more and is harder movies into the big screens the big cinemas Mm -hmm. and uh, even though things post-covid are a lot better uh, they're still just beginning to touch where they were in terms of revenues uh, where we were post-covid so it's going to be some time before that gets sorted out and before that changes so i think that we have a way to go here Mm -hmm. i think that we'll still see some older stars being older stars and I'm not sure what's going to come up behind them, because millennials, who are going to be the ones that will fuel this, don't watch movies the same way that the baby boomers do. And by that, I mean going to the theater. And uh, they don't have the same degree of uh, familiarity and loyalty. Mm-hmm. And they are far more likely, for example, to go on to YouTube and watch a key scene or two from a movie. And that's it. Yeah, so no revenue there, Jess. That's yeah. very
0: interesting. And uh, we don't need to belabor the point, but it's kind of interesting. You're, we're two men talking about male stars. Uh, what's the chance we'd be having this conversation when it comes to Scarlett Johansson who plays Black Widow? Would she be th- doing the same character at 75? Would Hollywood allow her to play the same character as well? So there's a little bit of sexism there uh, as well that's built in, in my opinion.
5: Yeah, I think there is, although we've got people like Viola Davis who are mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, on the sunnier side of 50. And... Uh, Big, big box office stars. Uh, Many women are there and uh, are doing well, but you're quite right. Uh, Will the younger generation still be talked about? It's kind of like saying, if this were 1964, who's going to know who the Beatles even were by the year 2000? Well, guess what? A whole bunch of people did. Uh, So, um, this is what the business is all about. It's risky and you have to put your money on the horse that you think is going to win and go with that, Jazz. There
0: you go. Rick, thank you so much, and thanks for watching the movie and giving us the review as well. Really appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful Canada Day-long weekend. Thank you. You too, Jazz. Thanks a lot. Well, let's talk about another issue that is front and centre for many Vancouverites. Recently, the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations and Canada Lands Company announced plans to redevelop the Jericho lands in West Point Grey. Um, They are saying they want to build 13,000 homes that would house upwards of 24,000 people. Now, the developers say that at a minimum, there'll be 30% of the homes will be affordable housing, 20% for social housing, um, and 10% for moderate income rental housing. Now, the project also includes more than 20 buildings that would exceed 20 stories. Three of them would be above 49 stories. It's an ongoing conversation. Early days, as these plans were just announced, but it would fundamentally reshape that corner of Vancouver. Um, many people have said, "Look, they support greater density." but some of these much larger buildings and towers just don't fit the character of the neighbourhood as well. Joining me now is Bill Thielman. He's a spokesperson for the Jericho Coalition. Bill, thank you for joining us.
6: My pleasure, Jabs, and don't ask me to say goal. Now,
5: <laughs> I would, that was incredible.
0: That was really good. That, we were asking for the best <laughs> South American announcer impersonation Give That lasted about 12 seconds. The record, by the way, is 18. Oh. And I was about to call an ambulance for <laughs> that poor <laughs> caller, but, but hey, people love tickets and uh, we love giving them away. So there we go. So let's talk a little bit about um, the Jericho lands for a moment. What don't you like about the proposal that has been presented at this stage by the Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil
6: Let me say what I do like. I think that uh, the the coalition, which is made up of volunteers from the local neighborhoods, do support housing on this spot. They do believe there can be quite a substantial, a significant increase in housing, and it can be sustainable, it can be diverse, it can be affordable, it can be regenerative, resilient, uh, all of the good things respond to the climate crisis. But it can't be a massive number of concrete towers, and especially 49 stories. Uh, And, you know, when this first came out in uh, 2021, there was a lot of opposition to it. There had been a working group that's worked with the city people were very uncomfortable with the proposal which at that point was for some 38 story and a lot of other very high I, i think there's over 24 um, uh, uh, High-rise concrete high-rises of various heights that are below 49, but quite high. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, MST Corporation and the Canada Lands Corporation uh, company came back with even more density, even higher high-rises all over. And so it's, it's very disappointing. And, and what we think is we can have a low-rise, missing middle type of housing that meets a lot of uh, or all of the objectives of development of the city, of the province in terms of increasing housing. Without doing it with very high GHD emitting high high literally high um, concrete towers that uh, just don't fit in, but also uh, would really be dominant across the entire uh, entire landscape or cityscape of the city.
0: But uh, my my argument to you is, what's wrong with a few more towers? That we need more housing. We need all of it. Missing middle, as you say. We need uh, condominiums. We need rentals. What's long, wrong with greater density? I mean, we have Metrotown, great density there. Uh, Brentwood uh, as well. You have Lougheed, um once again, uh, areas in Surrey now building in and around the city center area, around City Hall there. Also, once again, towers, greater density. What's wrong with Vancouver taking a little bit more density on, on the west side of Vancouver? where One would argue you actually need some.
6: Well, uh, absolutely, we do need more, and I think it would uh, help regenerate. Uh, West Point, Gray, and Kitsilano areas, but you know, our proposal, which is low-rise, no, no more really than eight stories, would still create probably 7,500 to 8,500 new units. That's a lot of people in a small area, a relatively small area, so we're not saying uh, no to density, we're not saying no to housing at all. Uh, what we're saying, though, is it has to fit into some uh, large degree with what's existing and what's, what's acceptable to neighborhoods, and, and that's the same all across the city. There's people who are concerned about high towers all over the city, mm-hmm. and uh, we're no different over here. I live in Kitsline. I'm about six or seven blocks away from the edge of this development and um, I don't, you know... There- West End is great. Brentwood is great. Metrotown is great. But, um, you know, Metrotown by the sea is not going to be for everyone. And I, that's why we have a, a consultative process and, and we'll go through the regulatory process and we'll make our points. But we'd really like to see the developers in the city listen to the neighborhoods, listen to folks who say, like, there are better ways to do this and we can do it.
0: Is there any any place in the west side of Vancouver that should accommodate 20, 30 story towers or 40 story towers?
6: Well, there are some tall towers out at UBC, which is sort of outside of the city uh, proper. But, um, you know, it depends. But uh, we had bylaws for a long time that four stories was the maximum in, in large part of Kitsilano and, and the west side. And there was a big battle over that in the 70s. I think, it, you know, it ultimately it's up to people. But I don't think anyone would say a 49-story concrete tower is going to be an affordable housing alternative or mi- missing middle. It's going to be a giant luxury condo, probably with a lot of international investors. Uh, and so I just don't see that this is compatible with the the kind of uh, lifestyle and the kind of uh, affordability and inclusiveness um, and you know climate responsiveness that we want to see in Vancouver but, across the whole city.
0: But don't. But isn't that housing? Isn't that how developments are built in this city? There are higher ri- high rises. There are um, higher end properties that perhaps allow the developer to make the profits that they need to make. But in, in but in allowing them to do so, we do ask that they build rental housing, uh, social housing, affordable housing. That 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 comes with it. Uh, Is your worry that it's going to turn into just Oak Ridge and that it would be just high-end condos and there'll be nothing else for most everyday people?
6: Well, I think so. and I think, you know, it depends on, on what, uh, as you said in your intro, what, what's the definition of affordable? Vancouver as a city is not affordable right now. Um, we think we can increase uh, density in low-rise. We look at the Arbutus um, area, the Arbutus uh, rows along there on Arbutus in the west side is, as an example of uh, how you can create more density without going to high-rise towers. We look at Paris. We look at all over Europe, uh, where they have significant density without uh, either any or, or very few towers. And those the kind of models that we've worked on, and and people can see that your listeners can can go to the JerichoCoalition dot website and see the video we've got there, which I think explains it quite nicely.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, going back to my first question, you know, beyond just the, the you know Metro Town I mentioned Brentwood and Low and Surrey, but you know Port Moody's taken on more towers. Coquitlam Centre has towers, and it seemed to me that somehow the the West Point Grey or West Side of Vancouver feels. It has a different type of model that is more probably Paris or Copenhagen, as you say, nothing more than eight stories. But aren't you obligated? as as Metro Vancouver uh, as we are as collectively as a city, that maybe you do need to take a bit more density in the west side of Vancouver because every other suburb seems to be doing it. I think in Delta uh, along Scott Road, they've got seven or eight proposals for high rises that they're considering. Most of them probably going to go forward uh, because they also believe you need more housing, all types of housing to be built. Um, It's occurring in every suburb, but somehow why is the west side of Vancouver immune from that?
6: Well, we're not saying no to density at all jazz, but what we are saying is what's livable, what sustainable, what makes sense, and you know, we see the, the great cities of Europe, as I just mentioned, are, do this without all sorts of towers. Not, the only model can't be high-rise concrete towers for any city, for any part of Metro Vancouver. Yes, we need to increase density. We also need to increase affordability. We need to look at a lot of different uh, factors in in this, but um, high rise concrete uh, has not. I mean, look, look at where we are now. We've got we're, we're an unaffordable city with lots of high rises already. It's not. It's clearly not working. That model does not work uh, to create affordability, and it hasn't worked for like twenty years so, or thirty years. Of, but we've seen this. So I, I mean, we think that there's a better way to do it, and and I and we'd love to talk to MST and CLC about it.
0: Uh, are, is there? Uh, have you asked for a meeting? Is, are we, have, work- we have
6: not since their proposal originally came out back in 2021. We, we never heard from them. There's been some indirect Direct um, meetings that have happened, uh, public meetings, not with us, but but we are inviting them to, to meet with us and discuss our proposal. We wanted to see what their new proposal was, and we'd hoped it would be um, listening to the community concerns that were expressed. And instead, it's gone in the opposite direction, unfortunately. But we'd be happy to meet with them and talk about it. And and uh, you know, they've got to go through a city regulatory process. It's private property. They're major developers, very major developers, and um, we hope that they'll listen.
0: Have they? What's the timeline right now? I'm not sure the city has to look oh, at this still, and, and
6: we, we're looking. There's a July. 16th deadline, again, for your listeners to have input on the city uh, and to go to the Vancouver City website so you can have input on that there. Uh, That's the initial stage. There's going to be a report on sort of basic principles going to council in the fall as the schedule, and then we'll obviously see more detailed proposals on that, but right now, you know, our members went to the open house that MST and CLC held, and there weren't even models of uh, their new proposal yet, so it's all in the the drawing stage, I guess, and hopefully there'll be models soon, but uh, we're, you know, we're just Trying to respond to what we've seen so far online, and, and that's where this came from.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, though, in your mind, this just can't go ahead. It, it, just fun- it changes the neighborhood in such a fundamental way, and it doesn't fit where, you, where residents you believe are at in regards to the type of development they want to see
6: it doesn't fit, but it also doesn't meet the objectives that I think the city and the province and and all of us kind of have to have more affordable housing, more missing middle housing, more sustainable, environmentally sound housing. And uh, a a swack of concrete towers on the beach just doesn't do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful Canada Day long weekend. Thanks very much, Jess. Let's talk a little bit about Canada Day. And, of course, there's going to be celebrations throughout uh, this country and, of course, throughout Metro Vancouver as well. Of course, there will be Canada uh, Canada Together celebrations right here at uh, Canada Place in downtown Vancouver. That's 999 Canada Place, of course. Um, uh, The events start at 9.30 in the morning with citizenship ceremonies. And, of course, from 11 a.m., uh, to 6 p.m. Uh, there'll be a variety of events called Canada Together, a variety of performances uh, as well. There'll be a Kid Zone presented by uh, CN, that's at the Jack Pool Plaza. And, of course, at the North Point stage would be the North Point of Canada Place. Lots of other emerging artists will be performing as well. As I said, food trucks, sports zones, community zones, uh, lots of stuff going on. And that'll go all the way from um, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, the one thing the Canada Day celebrations in the city of Vancouver won't have is, of course, fireworks. Although with our conversation with Mayor Ken Sim, this year is a bit too late because it is Uh, sponsored and funded by the port and for a variety of reasons they couldn't do it Uh, but i think as he said that they are working to make sure that is rectified for next year now there's other communities holding events as well in north vancouver of course at the shipyard um, shipyards west vancouver at um, uh, john lawson park as well new westminster westminster pier Pier park there are festivities from there from 1 till 6 p.m in port moody as well uh, Delta, Diefenbaker Park, Kirkland House, and uh, Chalmers Park, Langley Township of Langley, Maple Ridge, uh, Langley itself, downtown, uh, Township of Langley will be the Aldergrove Athletic Park, and in Maple Ridge, the Memorial Peace Park, with festivities from twelve p.m. to six p.m. Now, uh, the folks that are getting an A, and this is me, I'm biased. I'll be, I'll be saying that right from the start. The communities that will have fireworks include Burnaby. Events there will be at uh, Central Park with the festivities from 6.30 to 10.15 p.m., ending with fireworks. And during the day, uh, events at Burnaby Village festivities there will run from 11 a.m. to 4.30. Edmonds Park as well, 11 a.m. to 2.30. Coquitlam as well, the Farge Lake Town Centre, Port Coquitlam, Castle Park as well, Richmond, uh, Steveson Harbour, of course, for the Salmon Festival, love that event. And, of course, White Rock at the Memorial Park and Abbotsford, at the Abbotsford Exhibition Park from 8 to 10.15. Those cities that I've mentioned, Burnaby, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, Richmond, White Rock and Abbotsford, will have fireworks. Aberdsford actually has a laser light show, but the other communities will have fireworks. And another community that will have fireworks, of course, is Surrey. Joining now is Mary Orkavina, Special Events Manager for the City of Surrey. Hello, Mary. Hi, Josh. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. I wanted to give a shout-out to all our uh, communities here, Vancouver and the suburbs, but I thought it would be important to talk to some of you folks out there in Surrey as well. Walk me through some of the things that you're going to be doing out in your community.
1: Oh, we're super excited about our uh, Surrey Canada Day July 1st celebrations at uh, Cloverdale Millennium Amphitheater uh, Park in Surrey. Um, We have a legendary event. Uh, We're expecting... Over 100 cultural exhibits on site. We have a community hub with local dance showcase, an expanded Indigenous village with um, Indigenous programming, cultural sharing, um, an Indigenous market. We have amusement rides, and we have 40 food trucks. We have something for everybody. It's an awesome event. It brings families of all ages together.
0: Well, How many people do you generally uh, see at those types of events? I'm very curious.
1: Yeah. So last year, actually, we had our biggest attendance ever recorded. We recorded over uh, 90,000 attendees throughout the day.
0: 90,000. That's huge. Are you expecting the same this year or more?
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting because uh, Canada Day lands on a Saturday. So, um, you know, it depends on if people are staying in town or leaving for the long weekend. but. We anticipate at least hitting over eighty thousand people tomorrow, especially with the good weather expected.
0: Wow! Um, and you are, and just to confirm, you do have fireworks at the end of the evening as well.
1: Yes, we do. We have a, a fireworks show um, uh, planned for ten fifteen
0: tomorrow night 10:15 um and how much time does it take you to organize an event like this it's not like it's last minute i mean you got to get the acts together the organization and when does when does staff actually begin organizing canada day celebrations yes, we
1: are we are already planning next year's event and this year's <laughs> haven't even finished <laughs> really yeah so yeah it's a it's a it's an ongoing process uh, you know booking um, performers um, booking contractors, you know, changing things up, wanting to look at, you know, refreshing the event. So it's just an ongoing thing. Uh,
0: in regards to the fireworks themselves, how long do those last? Is those 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes?
1: Yeah, no, this year we have approximately a 10-minute show um, planned for this year's event.
0: All right. And I'm going to assume you got a huge crowd for that.
1: We do, yeah. we We have been putting on fireworks for, you know, over 20 years in the Millennium Amphitheater Park. And um, it definitely is uh, a special piece to our
0: show. Mary, thank you so much for your time today. All the best uh, to you and and all your taxpayers and citizens out there in Surrey. And have a great time.
1: Oh, thank you so much. 10 to 10.30 tomorrow night, folks.
0: Uh, I know uh, there's been uh, quite a challenging experience for a lot of folks uh, at the ferries uh, and perhaps that's where we should start with our next guest. Keith Baldry is, of course, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. I wanted to chat with him about uh, a recent poll, but let's talk about ferries first here, Keith. Um, any sense of, you know, how we ended up here uh, today in regards to ferries, especially on the second busiest weekend for the fa- BC Ferry Corporation?
4: Well, I think some of it was bad luck for the coastal celebration to be knocked out of service, a major vessel on a major route. Um, Just uh, was bad timing, to say the least. And then the ongoing challenges, I'm not sure how much of this played a role, but we've talked about this before, the ongoing challenges of crewing BC Ferries Transport Canada a few years ago changed the number the requirement for the number the minimum number of people of able-bodied seamen to be on board the vessel with safety training and that number now is significantly high and it, BC Ferries really cannot sail if they don't meet that staffing requirement as set down by Transport Canada so all it takes is one or two absences to knock a sailing uh off off the schedule and i think that in a combination of of uh, one major vessel going down is just uh, Terrible situation. I've been in a five sailing weight day, and it's uh, it's pretty brutal. I think I think the today it was a six sailing weight. I believe at uh, at Towasin. Ferries mm-hmm. is, is uh, trying to be creative. They've got kids entertainers in the terminals. I um, Think they've got some misting stations. I remember being stuck in a five sailing weight uh, day at and phoning former CEO David Hahn, to say, what the heck's going on here? And Hahn, because he's a fairly creative uh, CEO, hired a country rock band to play at the Tawasson Ferry Terminal and handed out free refreshments for everyone. So I haven't been to the terminal. I don't want to go anywhere near that terminal. We've got Richard Zussman out there today, and I'm leaving it to him to soak in the sun and the crowd.
0: I don't know if, uh, short of the Rolling Stones or maybe Taylor Swift, would uh, keep a few folks make a few, few folks happier when they're in that uh, terminal. Because right now, well, one,
4: one thing is, people got lots of warning about this, right? Yeah. it wasn't like it came out of the blue. You had to, if you didn't have a reservation, you're really subjecting yourself to a, you're rolling the dice. Where, where this can be more of a problem is when you, you expect there to be maybe a sailing weight and you show up at the terminal, what happened to me one day, and it's a four or five sailing weight because suddenly a vessel did crash without any, or not crash, but just be con- come out of service without any warning, mm-hmm. and it has that domino effect and just leads to delays. That's when you get cranky and frustrated people. We interviewed a number of people at both terminals today, had them on various newscasts, and a lot of were just kind of philosophical and sort of resigned to their fate and just saying, well, you know, that's the way it goes. It wasn't like on an unexpected delay where you get people more frustrated.
0: But it is amazing that one vessel goes down. and I know it's a major vessel. It's a, it's a coastal class. Uh, but it does speak to uh, just, you know, how tight the system is that one of these things goes down, one big vessel, and the whole system just gets turned upside down.
4: Yeah, and ferries is constantly... I mean, they've got a massive capital plan. They've been building vessels pretty well every year. And it really cannot keep up with demand. Keep in mind some of the one of those ferries I think they still got a couple of ferries that were built in the 60s you know I grew up on the taking the BC ferries you know over to Salt Spring Island to see the grandparents every weekend and you know those were 1960s ferries but I think the system has never been more crowded than it is now
0: let mm-hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit about just uh, delivering services and and uh, BC ferries being one of them but uh, a recent poll by uh, Angus Reid Institute uh, basically should British Columbians aren't that happy in, in regards to the provincial government and their ability to deliver key services, whether it be healthcare, cost of living issues, housing affordability?
4: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. And it's not just BC, just two example, Ontario as well. Very similar scores across the board. I mean, we're talking very low approval ratings when it comes to cost of living, health care, and housing in terms of a government performance. So about 80% of the population gives a thumbs down to both governments handling. But then when they're asked about voting intention, it completely flips on its head. And if election were held today, according to this poll and other polls as well, the NDP would win an easy re-election. I mean, they've, they've got a 40, 47 to 29% lead over BC United. Uh, Doug Ford in Ontario, very low numbers, similar to, to BC, NDP, when it comes to handling of these issues that are ranked as the top three issues of the electorate, but would, again, handily win an election in Ontario, largely because of a vote split between the Liberals and the NDP in that province. But nevertheless, he would win uh, likely a comfortable majority. I think one of the one of the things that comes out of this to me is that have we hit a stage where the electorate no longer thinks the government can actually accomplish number of things. And hmm. that means, I mean, we've been fighting housing affordability for years and through a succession of governments. The liberals were, you know, trying to do it, to tackle it. Now the NDP is, and nothing's really changed. And I just wonder if people think, you know, that's not the reason, I just don't think the government can solve this problem, or health care, which seems to be out of the grasp of all provinces right now, hmm. in terms of problems mounting across the country. And perhaps the electorate is just not viewing voting intent tied as much anymore. Um, to handling of issues uh, such as these, it may be the impression is is it beyond government control?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in that poll, it showed that BC NDP had 47 percent of decided and leaning voters, BC United at 29 percent. So. Eighteen points behind the NDP. Yeah, huge gap. Green Party at fourteen percent, and other parties uh, collectively at about ten percent. Part of it, one would argue, whether the name change from BC the World to BC United is one thing, but uh, I don't think anybody knows what they stand for yet. I I think they're trying uh, on a variety of issues, but I don't think you get immediately get an impression of what does BC United stands for. It seems like it's a party searching for, at least having difficulty articulating an identity.
4: I'd agree. I mean, I I think the vast majority of the population really doesn't know what BC United is. Very few people pay attention to politics at that granular level to notice when a party changes its name. I usually think about the parties at election time. Mm-hmm. Not so much between elections, and particularly when it comes to opposition parties. I mean, if you're going to get mad, uh, anyway, you're going to get mad at the government from you know between elections. You're not going to get mad at the opposition parties. You're not paying attention to the opposition party so much. And so when the opposition party changes its name, I think it goes by and large unnoticed by a vast chunk of the electorate. And I think that's what happened in, in some of the the, the by elections last weekend. I'm sure a number of voters were presented a ballot and looked at the car- card and said, "Well, I know what the NDP is. I know what Conservatives are." And the Greens, that's self-explanatory. What the heck is BC United? And I don't think uh, the party has really communicated its name change very well. And they sort of, you know, Kevin Falcons acknowledged that they've got a lot of work to do. There's going to be a massive ad buy, I think, which is probably good news for CKW and Global um, when it comes to purchasing ads. But they've got to get that that message out that they've changed their name because, I'll tell you, 47 to 29 – um, we haven't seen a split like that since uh, you go back to the dying days of NDP government in the late
0: 1990s. Yeah, I mean, uh, can, he turn, can Mr. Falcon turn it around, do you think? I mean, he's got a, just over talk? a year. It's, I, mean, that's, I mean, governments, un, it always says oppositions don't win. Governments uh, are the ones that uh, are the lead reason why they don't get elected, not opposition. But in, in this case, do you think he can turn it around so quickly? He's just got just over a year left.
4: Again, I think of what a third electorate doesn't even know who he is, and that's always, you know, it's a struggle for opposition to be heard. In this latest Angus Reid poll, his approval rating is a net minus 18, just 20 percent approve, 38 percent disapproved. Eby's, you know, 47 approved, 36 36- percent. So he's he's got a, a positive uh, net uh, rating. Falcon has a negative one. But you know, you could argue this two ways. One, it's good to be no, unknown because now you can uh, sort of define yourself along your lines and and you know, get known to the electorate along more positive ways. On the other hand, you know it's only 16 months before the election, and I, it may sound like a long time, but that's not a long time. Um, that's a, I think it's the, I think the by-election has underscored the urgency of the situation BC United finds itself in because the NDP government. Very well positioned in the polls in terms of where they are with public opinion. Even when the electorate is that upset or not that unimpressed with your performance on the issues that are near and dear to them, Mm -hmm. to have a gap like that between you and your nearest political opponent is astonishing. And it's great news for David Eby and Doug Ford in Ontario.
0: Yeah. The issue of um, the cancer patients uh, going down to Bellingham uh, for um, for treatment – uh, look, it, it it helps us in the sense in the near term that people who need the need the treatment uh, can go, and I feel very happy for them. But I think the overarching message of sending Canadians down to relying on a on an on American system to to help our public system, um, I'm a bit surprised that we haven't seen more outcry on that.
4: Well, again, maybe as I said at the top, perhaps people don't think the government is in control of these systems uh, in the ways they perhaps they, they uh, thought before, that these these systems and problems have become so big and so regular and so consistent. And that, uh, even though, you know, we didn't have a little bit of a well, at least fewer number of people down the Valley the I mean, There were uh, some pregnancies sent down there, but nowhere near the number we're talking about here in the NDP. But I think when it comes to public health care, uh, I think people accept that it's probably never going to work the way it should work in terms of always functioning properly, no matter who's in government. And that's why I, maybe it's not a vote-determining issue anymore for people, if, if it ever was. Uh, historically, the NDP seems to be the party that benefits most from health care. But perhaps the longer they're in government, that may change. But right now, just because people are upset with the handling of health care, it doesn't affect how they're voting or how they intend to vote.
0: Yeah. Well, it's going to be a, a very interesting Canada Day long weekend. I'm sure many of these um, BC Liberal and the PRBC United. No, and put, the... A, put a coin
4: in the glass in the <laughs> there. You made
0: a mistake. You uh, met BC... Mike
4: Smith yesterday.
0: Uh, did you? BC United, <laughs> uh, Green Party members, and of course, many other uh, Conservative parties as well. They'll be out um, working the barbecue circuit, I'm sure, throughout the summer. Uh, as well, be very interesting fall when they get back to the legislative session. But uh, let's see how this all transpires. But it looks like uh, BC United has a lot of work ahead of them over a the next of work. A lot of, over the next year. Or so, Keith, have yourself a wonderful Canada right. Day long weekend, and we'll chat on Monday.
4: Have a great weekend.